Thank you, choir, as Dr. Taylor said, for all of you. And thank you, choir. What a great, great day we've already had in worship and celebration. And uh, I am so thankful to be a part of this faith family and have the privilege of, of seeing God work as he is working. I want to make one quick note, if I can, just to, uh, as a matter of, of uh, safety or protection or, or uh, security. Uh, if you, uh, We had some people that took some pictures during baptism here and there and even back there. And we've just made mention that we probably don't need to put Balaram's face on, on uh, social media of any sort. He still has family that we're uh, praying to reach and working to reach. And just for security measures, that would be helpful. So I would appreciate that. What a great joy it is, though, that we have the opportunity to reach the nations right here. And in fact, I want to speak to you today about a phrase that Jesus gave regarding prayer and the nations. And we will talk about that at length as we finish up our time together talking about prayer. This is the last in our series on prayer. If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite your attention first to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. As you're turning there, Mark chapter 11, I want us to think about how easy it is for us to miss it. We can misunderstand what God's intended purpose, His design, His direction is or was. One Sunday morning, the pastor noticed little Alex was standing in the foyer of the church and he was looking up at this plaque that hung over the foyer. It was a plaque filled with names, and on either side of the names, there were American flags. You probably immediately know what those names would be for, certainly a memorial. Well, this seven-year-old had been staring at the plaque for some time, and the pastor came up behind him and quietly said, Alex, how are you this morning? He said, well, I'm okay, pastor. But then he asked, the, the, the curiosity got the better of him, pastor, what is this plaque for? Well, son, it's a memorial to all the young men and women who died in the service. Alex looked quite concerned as he took a step back. Shaking, he looked at his pastor and said, Pastor, which service, 8.30 or 11? We can miss it sometimes. I assure you that no one will be harmed in the making of this service this morning, all right? I've spent the better part of my Christian experience studying prayer, revival, and spiritual awakening. Some years ago, I was uh, confronted by a man that became a, a dear friend. His name was Ron Dunn, and he really challenged me with a, a deep burden to see revival and spiritual awakening in our day and in our generation. And I continue daily to pray for it. And as we think about prayer I'm afraid at times we've missed it. I'm afraid at times we've, we've drifted off course as the church here in North America and other parts of the world, but in, in places we've just missed it. I want to start out this morning by telling you about a time that the church missed the greatest opportunity for revival that was ever given to this planet. In fact, you don't have to turn there, but it's recorded in Luke chapter 19. Jesus entered into the city, and it says that he wept over the city, and he even said to them, if you knew what this day was about, if you knew what would bring peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes, you did not recognize your day of visitation. God himself stepped into our world, Jesus Christ, in flesh, and they missed it. They weren't looking for him as he was. They were looking for a Messiah of their own making, 
of their own concept. They were looking for a king that would overthrow Rome and lead politically. And I think sometimes even in our culture, we look for political leaders to be somehow the savior that we need. But we don't need a political savior. We need Jesus. I think we've missed it in several places. They missed it in that day. Jesus is describing a time there. In fact, if you were to go and read Luke 19, he says that your enemies will overtake you and they will set up an embankment against you. He knew of a day that was coming in 70 AD where Jerusalem would be ransacked and the temple would be destroyed and their way of life and their way of worship would be taken from them. And he said, you missed it. They had become so disoriented that they didn't recognize him. They rejected him. I wonder if we're there today as a people, as a church, as a nation. Have we become so disoriented that we would call evil good and good evil and that we have not recognized Jesus but we have rejected him? This morning, very simply, as best I can, I want to paint for you a biblical picture Of a house of prayer. We're going to look at Mark chapter 11. And and there are words that you are familiar with. Jesus comes into the temple. And he is distraught by what he sees. In fact he is angry at what he sees. He He is indignant. In a righteous indignation. A righteous holy fire. We're looking at Mark chapter 11. Starting in verse 15. And if you would in honor of the reading of God's word. Stand with me as we read this text. They came to Jerusalem and he went out or he went into the temple complex and began to throw out those buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the money changers' tables and their chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple complex. And then he began to teach them, "Is it not written, my house will be called what? Help me church. A house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into A den of thieves. Let's pray together. Father, our desire today is that we would hear from you. Our greatest need today is that you would visit us in this place. Lord, I pray that if this were a day of visitation, that we would not miss it as those Jews, as those people in the days that you walked with them. God, send revival. I pray that fire would fall from heaven this very day and would consume the sin in our lives. God, that we would offer ourselves to you as living sacrifices this day. Lord, we need revival. We need you. In Jesus' name we ask that you would impart truth to us today. Amen. You may be seated. There are four words in this text that draw my attention elsewhere in Scripture. Hopefully you pick them up. Jesus asked the question, is it not written? Is it not written? So Jesus is pointing them back to something that they were extremely familiar with. He was pointing them back to Scripture elsewhere. They would have known the Word of God. And he said to them, is it not written? Don't you already know this? I don't know about you, but there were times in my life that I got in trouble for doing things that I really didn't know necessarily were going to get me in trouble. There were things that I did just out of curious mischief that I did. 
And, and I, I probably should have known better, but nobody had specifically prohibited me from doing those things. I'll give you an example. Uh, we were at my grandparents, and I went to my grandfather's barn, and I got out into that barn, and I decided that I was going to follow in the footsteps of my grandfather and my father, who both were carpenters by trade. And I took a hammer, and I took big ten-penny nails, and I took his wooden toolbox that he had built himself, and I nailed it shut for him. I just wanted to help. I didn't let probably more than a half inch go between any of those given nails. It took him years to get that thing undone. I think they cut the top off. Well, I got in trouble for that one. But th nobody had ever said, Scott, do not do this. I got in trouble for some other things that I had been specifically told, do not do this. Anybody here? Fit that description. Absolutely all of us. I'm not telling those stories. Some of those were painful, painful childhood memories. <laughs> the reality is that the people had been told, this is what I expect of you. In Isaiah 56, and that's going to be our, our central point for the rest of this uh, time together, it, it describes that picture a biblical picture of a house of prayer. I want you to see this biblical picture uh, first and foremost because they knew well what they were supposed to be. He had said as he turned over the tables, is it not written that my house will be called a house of prayer and you've made it into something else? In fact, he would have called them back to two places in Scripture. We'll focus on the positive today, a house of prayer. We could go to Jeremiah as well and see where the description of a den of thieves is. But here, he points them to those Scriptures and says to them very, very plainly, this is what my people should be like. Isaiah 56, starting in verse 1 Moving through verse 8. Preserve justice and do what is right, for my salvation is coming soon. And my righteousness will be revealed. Happy is the man who does this, anyone who maintains this, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Listen to these words. Verse 3. No foreigner has joined himself to the Lord. Uh, who has joined himself to the Lord should say, The Lord will exclude me from his people. And the eunuch should not say, look, I am a dried up tree. For the Lord says this, for the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold firmly to my covenant, I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give each of them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord minister to him, love the name of Yahweh, and become his servants. All who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and all who fir hold firmly to my covenant, I will bring them to my holy mountain, and let them rejoice in where? My house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. This is the declaration of the Lord God, who gathers the dispersed of Israel, I will gather to them still others besides those already gathered. Here's what I want to do, church, if I could give you an outline of, of where we're going this morning. Uh, people have wrestled through the idea of revival and spiritual awakening. They've asked if this is, is there a prescription for revival? Are there things that we can do to see revival? Or a description of revival. There are places in Scripture where we see what it looks like when revival breaks loose, when revival actually happens. 
And, and I'm interested in both. I'm fascinated to read stories over the centuries of great awakenings of how God stirred men and women to prayer and to evangelism and to missions. A description of revival is fabulous, but I want us to look also today at a prescription for revival. In fact, one of the most famous scripture verses that would address that topic that we know is 2 Chronicles 7, 14. And I I use this as an illustration for both. You see, God said to the people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then while I hear from heaven, will heal their land and forgive their sin. And, and so that is a description of revival. When, when God's people get right, people will start getting right. When revival breaks out, when revival starts, when a visitation of God is recognized, a supernatural touch of the Spirit of God in our midst, people begin to humble themselves and repent of sin and turn toward God and cry out to His name. But that is also a prescription for revival. God says conditionally, if my people will do these things, then I will respond. So why are we not living in a day and a season of revival response. Perhaps we've not taken the prescription to heart. You see, in Isaiah 56, the people of God had wandered away. They had found themselves in exile as they often were. They had disobeyed God. They had sought after satisfaction in other idols. And God allowed them to be taken away. There was this constant cycle as we talked about even Wednesday night, a cycle of the judges where the people of God would stray away from God and then he would judge them and they would cry out in the middle of their uh, overwhelming pain in exile. He would raise up a deliverer and he would save them and they would serve him. But then they'd start all over again. I want us to see very simply a biblical picture of a house of prayer from these eight verses. And then after we look at that picture of it, I want us to see a practical outworking of that. This is a description, and then we're going to look together at a prescription. I want to give you several things. Number one, a house of prayer is a place where God's people keep His covenant and do what is right. A house of prayer is a place where God's people keep His covenant and do What is right? They live according to his plans. You see, in these verses, God says that they would serve me, that they would love me, that they would worship me. The people of God, getting right with God, always find themselves moving on to God's agenda. And when we move on to God's agenda, our lives are focused on his will, his way. Oh, there's so many comparisons. We we talked about this again this past week as we were thinking about types of uh, and pictures in, in Scripture. Adam, the first Adam, man who represented all of us, failed miserably in the garden when faced with a test. But hallelujah, Jesus came along in a garden and he passed the test. Not my will, but your will. And standing on behalf of us now, when we find ourselves placing our trust in him and we're lining our lives up with his, we find ourselves free in that declaration. God, your will, not mine. When this church or any church becomes a house of prayer. People of God will keep the covenant of God and do what's right. When we find ourselves bickering or backbiting or infighting, I can guarantee you that's not a picture of a house of prayer. 
When we find ourselves gossiping, when we find ourselves uh, complaining, it's not a picture of a house of prayer. When we find ourselves breaking the laws of God, not desiring to witness, not hungering and thirsting for righteousness. If we were to back up in this book of Isaiah to another passage that you're greatly familiar with, when Isaiah saw the Lord immediately, he was moved on to God's agenda. He saw himself transported into the presence, and when he saw God... In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and he found himself overwhelmed. Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. You see, when we become a house of prayer, we don't look at other people's sins. We look at our own. I don't have time to worry about your sins Now, I pray for you often, but I don't have time to nitpick and judge and try to get into your life. I've got enough of my own to take care of. And so if I'll keep myself in line, Lord, I pray that I would live my life as a living example of the life of Jesus Christ day by day. So shine that others would see my good works, not for my sake, but so that they would glorify you. Matthew 5, 16. And your role is to live your life keeping yourself in check and doing what is right. And when God's covenant people keep that covenant and do what is right, we're starting to see an environment that is a house of prayer. Number two, I want you to see this very, very simply. A house of prayer is a place where God's people love worship, and serve the Lord. It comes directly from our text. As you read through, I'll just go back through them. See how these faithful foreigners are characterized. In the text, they join themselves to the Lord. They minister to the Lord. They love the name of the Lord. They will be His servants. They keep from profaning the Sabbath. They hold fast His covenant. See, here's what I want you to see, church, and I can't make this any simpler. Yahweh's true followers are known by their lifestyle faith. If you and I are going to be followers of Jesus Christ, God calls us to a place where we say, not my will, but yours. Not my design, yours. Not my desires, yours. Lord, I turn myself over to you. And here, God just painted a very simple picture. He said, even foreigners who will trust me, who will do as I say, I will bring them in. And that is a picture of a house of prayer. You see, it moves forward. We know that the Jews rejected Jesus and praised God. Jesus would bring in foreigners. He would engraft Gentiles into the family of faith. Some of you ought to get real happy about that because he let you and me in. I'm talking about us. I asked that question Wednesday night. I I asked if there are any converted Jews that are among us. And we didn't have a single one. I said, is there anyone here that is a converted non-Jew? And not one person raised their hand. Well, maybe a few here and there. So I had to stop and ask the question, is there anybody here converted? Let me ask that. Anybody here been saved? That was like 13 of you on the first five rows. Are you mad about it? (laughs) Anybody here saved and excited about it? I find myself overwhelmed with joy, and that moves us to the next place. Look with me, if you will. It is a place, a house of prayer is a place of God-given joy. I'm amazed at this. I get the opportunity to speak in a lot of different places, have over the last several years, and as I have, I've seen a lot of churches that are not filled with joy. People look angry. 
I realize that the world around us is challenging. We've got hope. We win in the end because Christ has already won. We have the promise of the victory of eternal life. And if we don't live in that place of joy, it doesn't mean that we foster it. It doesn't mean that we try to muster it up and fake a smile. It means that there is an earnest, honest sense of joy. You say, well, pastor, you don't know what I'm going through. You're right. I may not know all that you're going through. I know this much. The more we spend time in Sunday school rooms and in the hallways when we gather talking about football or bass fishing or whatever else, politics, the less joy we're going to have. The more time we invest talking about Jesus Christ, our lives will be filled with joy. Amen. Thank you, artist. you, you You may be suffering your way through to heaven, but I'm enjoying the journey. I just am. Because God has blessed us with so much. And the Bible says uh, that they would offer sacrifices and their sacrifices would be accepted. We don't offer sacrifices in that sense anymore. But it means this, that we offer worship and we cannot offer worship if we're not right with each other. Jesus dealt with that a little later on. He said if your brother has something against you, before you leave your gift or before you bring your, your gift, leave it there at the altar and go and reconcile. I really believe that many churches are not experiencing revival and spiritual awakening because there are people that are holding on to grudges. They're holding on to past hurts. And they continue in their life to have things that have not been made right. I've seen this happen over and over again in revival meetings in different times. Everybody in the church knew it. Sister so-and-so and and brother so-and-so were mad at each other. They got sideways, now nobody even knows. It's like the Hatfields and McCoys. We really don't exactly know why they're mad, but they're just mad. And in the middle of their anger, maybe it was over some committee decision 27 years ago, they're still mad about it. And the church has experienced no real life and vitality since then. Maybe, just maybe, you and I need to search our own hearts this morning. And say, Lord, is there anything within me and my life and my relationships that's keeping Hardy Street Baptist Church from experiencing the fullness of your spirit and your power and your joy? God-given joy is a sign of a house of prayer. I'm just giving you a description straight from the text. Number next, I believe it's number five or so. God's people have a love like God for the nations. God's people have a love like God's for the nations. He says it would be a house of prayer for all nations. In Revelation 7, 9, there's a picture of a vast number, a vast multitude. No one can count. It says from every race, tribe, tongue, and nation. I have friends in Balaram's very own nation, his, the kingdom of Nepal, that are are striving to see a vast multitude from every tribe, tongue, nation come to know Lord Jesus. Folks, if we don't have a heart for the nations here, you're probably not going to like heaven. Heaven will be a place filled with the creative beauty of God. Every race, every tribe, every tongue, every people. And I'm so thankful that he left room for me. 
Oh, I pray that we would open our eyes beyond our own fears and that we would seek to be a house of prayer for all nations. In fact, something beautiful happens as we see this. Number, uh, number next, God brings exiles. He gathers exiles of his people back to himself. He, he says that in verse 8. He says, I will bring them back out of exile. You see, this is part of that description of revival. When revival starts happening, people start coming back to church. They've been wayward and lost and wandering away from the flock, but they come back. And then when they come back, the cool thing is, and this takes us to the next one, God gathers a lost world to himself. Think about this. If revival were to come to this church, we would be filled with God-given joy. We would seek to do the Lord's will and not our own. We would long to be right with each other so that we could offer acceptable sacrifices. We would see people get right and come back, and we would see lost people get saved. I don't know what else you're searching for, but that's a picture of what I want this church to be. That's a picture of what I want the kingdom of God to look like right here in Hattiesburg, right here in the Pine Belt. is a group of people gathered in the name of God, in the joy of God, in the power of the Spirit of God, doing the will of God and spreading the message of God. Amen. That's a description. Let's take it just a little bit further. I want you to see a practical outworking. You know, the world missed revival in Jesus' day because they were supposed to be a house of prayer. But they became a den of thieves. Which do we look like? I wonder. What does God see when he looks at your home, my home, this church? Are we fleeing from the evidences of being a den of robbers? We move from the description to a prescription, a a practical outworking. Let me give you just a few thoughts. I want us to do this, so I don't want to just be negative and say, boy, we ought to do things. Number one, we get right with God and with each other. James 5.16 says, It's the fervent prayer of a righteous man that availeth much, that has much power with God. If we want to see power in our prayers, we better get right with people. It says it's a righteous man's fervent prayer. You can't harbor sin in your life and in your heart and expect God to continually answer your prayers. So we want to pray with power. I want our church praying with power for missionaries. I want our church praying with power for gospel witness and for healing and for strength. All those things. Number two, I want you to see this. When a house of prayer really is focused or if we want to become one, we have to rekindle a first love with Jesus Christ, our wounded Savior. Dr. Claude King was the first man that I heard use that phrase, I think, this way, talking about spiritual awakening. Perhaps you're familiar with him. He was uh, the co-author of Experiencing God with Henry Blackaby. And, and, and I heard Dr. King talking about this. And as he did, he was talking about the Moravian church. The Moravian church in the 1700s were gathered together about 300 people. And they had a Lord's Supper service. And in that Lord's Supper service, the power of God just fell. And the people's hearts were broken as they contemplated the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, their wounded Savior. And it sparked a revival. In fact, it sparked first a prayer meeting. They cast lots together and picked 24 men and 24 women to pray all night that first night. And people began to line up. And it came to a place that they didn't pray for 24 hours 
or 36 or 72. No, they prayed for a hundred years that way. It's called the hundred year prayer meeting. And hundreds of the Moravians were sent out as missionaries because they were broken hearted for the wounded Savior and they rekindled a brand new love for him. You know what I have found? I quit grumbling about my preferences when my eyes are fixed on Jesus. I, I don't worry about anything that's, that, that's going on around me. Churches have split over which side the piano and the organ should go. Churches have split over the color of carpet. They've split over what you did or didn't put in the bulletin. They've split over who or when you let somebody in the church. And I want you to see this. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's his church. And when we focus on him, none of those things matter. When we fall in love with the Lord Jesus Christ, all of that goes away. The Moravians had a powerful, powerful statement that went something like this. Our desire is that we win for the lamb that was slain the rewards of his suffering. Let me read that again. We want to win for the lamb that was slain the rewards of his suffering. You say, what are those? Isaiah 53, they were reading from. And in Isaiah 53, it says that he would gain the spoils of his suffering. And they asked themselves, what are the spoils of the suffering of Christ? Why did he die? Souls. Souls. And they ran together and they said, the spoils of the suffering of Christ are the souls of men, the souls of women, the souls of boys, the souls of girls. And we want to win for the lamb who was slain the spoils of his suffering. See, we don't witness in any way or, or, or fashion to gain approval in, in any way before the Lord. I don't witness to people so that I can be seen of men to say, boy, look at Scott. He likes to go out witnessing. No, I witness because Jesus suffered and died for the souls of men. And you and I need to bring them to him. As I think about this together this morning, church, I, I know that I may be a little more worked up than normal. No, we didn't change the coffee. and No, I didn't drink too much of the pancake syrup this morning. I'm just passionate about our church coming to a place of seeing revival. Number three, we will be devoted to prayer with God's people in every setting possible. I want us to get to that place where prayer marks the people of this church. Let's look at the next one. We'll pray for one another while together with one another. You know, have you found how often and how easy it is to tell somebody you'll pray for them? It's become a, a, just a, an easy stamp on Facebook. I mean, if somebody says, please pray, and everybody says, praying, 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 praying. Somebody meets you in the hallway at Sunday school, and they say, hey, I need you to pray for me. Well, I'll sure pray for that. And then the next time you see them, you hadn't thought about it since then. And they say, oh, I'm glad you prayed for me. And you said, oh, me too. Pray with people while you have the chance. Stop right there. I think one of the coolest things that could and would happen in this or any church would be that you walk through the halls and you see people just huddled up in various places praying. Pray with each other together while you're together. A couple more and we'll be finished. Make prayer a primary part of every aspect of our church. Every aspect. How do we do that? You can walk away from here and go eat chips and salsa to the glory of God this afternoon and talk about the service and talk about the music and talk about the pancakes and forget all about spiritual things. 
Here's what I want to do. I want to give you three or four very practical ways that we can become a house of prayer by making prayer important. Everybody hold up your bulletin. Everybody. Reach in and tear out this little connect card. Everybody. Sounds like it's raining in here, doesn't it? Some of you are having too much fun doing it. It shouldn't take that long. Come on. I think there are people back there just shredding their bulletins. Here's what I want you to do before we leave. I want you to listen to me for the next few minutes. But before you leave this place, I want you to write down two or three prayer requests under that section. There are going to be baskets by the office door, and there will be baskets in the back. Just drop it in there. Put your name on there so we'll know who it is because we want to track them. We want to be able to see how and when God answers these. There's several hundred people here today, and I would believe that if we all wrote three prayer requests, hopefully I, some of you won't, but let's just say we get five, 600 prayer requests in here today that we could take those and we'll watch God systematically answer them. Now, I want to see also, this is sort of a litmus test, and I'm going to go ahead and, and let you off the hook some by even saying this. I thought about just saying, write me requests and we'll look at them. I want to see if you're praying for Sister Sue's pancreas or you're praying for your lost neighbor. I mean, you know, I, her pancreas is important to, the, to God. I know that. But are we really a house of prayer that's praying beyond just God, heal us and keep us happy and healthy. What are you praying for? You see, we'll be a prayer, a house of prayer for all nations when we begin to lift our eyes beyond what we can see. So that's number one. I want you to write those down and turn them in today. Number two, I want to challenge our church to do something. Everybody look this way. Y'all look in choir? All right. We have a prayer room. How many of you, you folks know that we have a prayer room at our church? How many of you did not know before I just said that we had a prayer room? There's some folks, that's fine. We have a prayer room. Currently, it, it has just kind of dwindled down to a handful of faithful people that come. I want us to fill the prayer room back up for at least 40 hours a week. I believe we can do that. I believe we can cover the office hours Monday through Thursday, 8 to 5, and then we'll open it up on Friday morning, 8 to noon. I believe we can cover that time. We're going to do prayer training on March the 20th and then on April the 3rd. You'll have information next week about it. And as we give you that information about that, we want you to, we just want to challenge and encourage you to come through the training so you'll be prepared. We are revamping and redoing the prayer room. And in redoing the prayer room, we need to do new training. We want you to be a part of it. It's going to be exciting. You'll want to come. If you're willing, maybe you and your wife or you and a friend want to come and give one hour a week is what we're asking for. I've asked the staff to pray, prayerfully consider which hour they're going to take. And so we're going to revamp that. I believe that helps us become a house of prayer. The next thing I want you to see is that on March the 20th, we will dedicate, and all this is right there in the middle of your bulletin, we're going to dedicate our prayer center. We've put together resources that will help you pray for your spouse, for your kids, for your grandkids, for your lost neighbors, for your school, for our nation. Right out here by the office is going to be a, a set resource center, a physical display that people will look at and say, that church takes prayer seriously. And finally, in these practical matters, we're going to challenge our church to do something else. In the month of April, I want everybody in the church that is willing, I want you to pray about it and think about it, but I want you to commit to pray with one person for 30 straight days. We'll take everyone that turns in a commitment card, we'll have those a little later in the month, toward Easter, 
If you'll turn in that commitment card, we're going to pair up men with men and women with women. And we're going to challenge you. We're going to give you a prayer guide and challenge you to pray with them every single day for the month of April. You say, Brother Scott, I travel with my job. I can't. You can pick up the phone and call them. Y'all can pray through email if you need to. You can Skype each other if you have to. And if you don't know what Skype is, forget it. You didn't need to know it anyway. Just call them. The reality is, though, that hopefully on, Monday, on Sundays and Wednesdays when you're here, you guys will just pair up. You'll meet with your prayer partner and you'll come to this altar or some place around the church. And when we walk in, we'll start seeing people praying everywhere. This isn't rocket science. I just want us to become a house of prayer for all nations. And one of the ways that we do that is to make prayer a primary part of every aspect of our church. Number six, we want to tell and share the stories and testimonies of answered prayer. Very simply, if we take these 500 or so prayer requests today, I'm praying that we will keep track of how many that God answers. And in a month from now, in five months from now, we'll be blown away that God was answering our prayers. You see, a, a church that keeps up with prayer requests that are answered has an understanding of the working of God. When an individual Christian keeps up with answered prayers in their life, you've got a record that you can go and show your kids and their grandkids. You can say, we began praying for this, and this is how God came through. That's powerful. Finally, we want to pray for God's assignments to the lost world, beginning at home and going to the ends of the earth. That's the great Commission, that last command of God, the Great Commission. This morning, as your pastor, I know that this has been totally different in some ways. We studied the Word together, yes. I, I've challenged you with some unique things, yes. But the opportunity that lies before us is very, very real. God's desire and God's design is that this place be a house of prayer for all nations. If Jesus were to walk in and, to, and, and this very day and talk to us about our Sunday school, talk to us about our worship, talk to us about the way that we conduct ourselves, would he see us as a house of prayer? Or perhaps would he see us as a den of thieves that has stolen glory away from God, that has removed the focus from his lordship? Today, there are many who have been praying already this morning for you. We gathered in this place this morning, a few of us, and just prayed over every single seat in this place, asking God to speak to your heart. I, I pray that you'll join us, by the way. That's not on the list, but 8 o'clock every Sunday morning if you want to. We just pray over every seat. Love to have you here. Today, if you've never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, you can have the same assurance that Landry and Balaram have. You can have the same assurance that if you trust Jesus, he will save you. We would love to share with you from God's word what it means to be saved. We're going to stand and sing a hymn of decision, a hymn of invitation. Members of the staff will be here to receive whatever decisions there are in your life that you need to make. Perhaps it's to join this church. We would love for you to unite with us. This is a great place and God's doing great things. Let's stand together.